Welcome to the Borrando el Estigma, or in English, the Erase the Stigma podcast, where we have real and sometimes Spanglish conversations about various topics and factors impacting the mental health of Black, Indigenous, people of color, BIPOC. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Gray, a licensed psychologist in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information, visit the website at borrandolestigma.com or at erasethestigma.shop. I hope that you not only enjoy this conversation, but also learn lots of valuable information from the podcast that will contribute to erasing the mental health stigma in your home and in your community. However, please know that this is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hola, and gracias for tuning in for episode one of the Erase the Stigma, Borrando el Estigma podcast. Anything for Salinas. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Gray, a licensed psychologist in Las Vegas, Nevada. Have you all watched the new Salinas series on Netflix? I sit down with Dr. Claudia Mejia, a licensed psychologist in Las Vegas, Nevada, to dissect the first episode of the series from a psychological perspective. We also discussed the impact Selena had on many first-generation Latinx, the influence of growing up biculturally, cultural factors such as familismo, low socioeconomic status or low SES, and issues related to bilingualism. Dr. Claudia Mejia is a bilingual, bicultural licensed psychologist in Nevada and is currently the Director of Social and Behavioral Health Services at Volunteers in Medicine of Southern Nevada, where she provides direct clinical services to patients, develops behavioral health and social service programming, and supervises graduate psychology and mental health counseling trainees. She also works with other local nonprofits as a provider, consultant, and board member. Dr. Mejia is a Chicago-born, Mexican-American, first-generation Latina. She has lived and worked in predominantly Latinx areas in the United States, including Miami and San Antonio, and is currently based in Las Vegas, where she focuses on working with immigrant populations, first-gen folks, and low-income communities attempting to decrease stigma associated with mental health and help-seeking, and aims to increase access to behavioral health by attempting to decolonize Western approaches. Let's get into it. So welcome to Borando la Stigma podcast, the Racist Stigma podcast. I am with Dr. Claudia Mejia, who is a licensed psychologist here in Nevada as well. And before I let her introduce herself, I'm going to introduce myself briefly. My name is Dr. Sandra Gray. I am a licensed psychologist also in Nevada, and I am your host for Borando la Stigma. We're going to start talking today on our first episode about the new Selena series on Netflix. And about the overall impact that Selena had on our lives as a first-gen or second-gen Latinx um, individual. And just overall, um, talk about the series, dissecting it from a psychological perspective. So today we'll be talking about episode one, taking a look at the psychological issues, the mental health implications that come up in each series. So if you haven't watched or been watched the Selena series like I have, do that so that you can watch our episodes and go with us. Um, we're hoping to also in the future dissect other series like Hentified, Gentified, but dissecting some of those series and looking at some of the Latinx issues and factors that we experience, um, not only as a culture, but as bicultural folks, right? Because we're, uh, at least for me personally, I'm Mexican-American. I identify as a Chicana, and I say Chicana with an X because I'm all about decolonizing um, not only my mind, but mental health in general. So I'm gonna give it over to Dr. Claudia Mejia so she can introduce herself to us and then we'll jump into the conversation about this series. Thank you. So very, very excited to have this conversation because one, it's kind of in the mainstream right now, obviously, but also it's been part of our lives, right? And so we'll talk a little bit more about kind of how we were introduced to her early on. Um, but like Sandra, you mentioned, I'm a psychologist here in Las Vegas. I've been living in, in lots of different parts of the country, primarily areas where there's a high Latino population. Um, so I was born in Chicago, moved to San Antonio, Texas, and did my internship in Miami, Florida, and then landed here in Las Vegas. And so all those are big hubs for Latinx folks. And 
even within that, the cultures are so different. Um, so I'm also Mexican-American. I identify as Latina. Um, I'm in that kind of journey of decolonization as well and really trying to dissect who I am, but also I think more than anything, appreciate who I am from all of the, the influences, both from where I've lived, but also from my family's background. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, part of those influences, like we're here talking today, right, is like Selena and seeing someone that was like us growing up and just seeing someone that we resonate with, that we can relate to, that is now like, at least at that point in our life was before her death was crossing over into like mainstream culture. And so um, similar to you, I grew up, um, I was born in L.A., I lived there until I was about seven years old and then relocated here with my parents for work like in 91. And um, growing up here, I grew up on the east side of town, which is predominantly Latinx, uh, predominantly African-American. And so growing up in, in kind of our own little world, too, because I feel like when we have those hubs, right, where most Latinx folks are, we have so much influence um, in from the culture, right? From carnicerias to, you know, tire shops that, you know, are Latinx owned. And so seeing a lot of the language, even like on billboards, um, was where I grew up um, as well. So I'm excited um, to talk a little bit about that. And so you're from Texas. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, how um, Selena impacted your life, how when or how she came about in your even, you know, in your thought process. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So like I mentioned, I was born in Chicago and we moved to Texas when I was eight years old. So it was right around the time, a little bit after Selena's death. So my first like real memory of her, I have a very, very vivid memory of being in gym class. I'm in second grade. We're like in the basement gym in Chicago. It's like cold. I got my sweats on, those high tops. And somebody comes up to me and was like, oh, did you hear Selena died? And I'm like seven years old, right? So I'm like, it, it, it wasn't as like emotionally impactful at that time. But I was like, oh, like, whoa. I've, I've never had a like serious tie to like celebrity hood in that sense. But I just that moment was was impactful because he was like, oh, th this person who we've danced to, we've sung to is now gone, right? And so I remember kind of just that image and that moment. Um, and then when we moved to Texas, San Antonio, there was, I think, a bigger presence being so close. I think it's like three hours from Corpus where she was, where they have a museum for her and everything. Um, so that, that was a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, I remember in, I'm a little bit older than you, right? Like not too much older, but I'm, I'm a little bit older. Than you. <laughs> um, but I, I remember even in like fourth grade before she died, you know, like we had this like talent show at um, Albert Edwards Elementary where I went to school on the east side of town here. And we, you know, I like, I sang, we danced and a few of our, my cousin and a few of her friends who I'm still in contact with today, like they, you know, they did a, a dance routine to Como La Flor, right? And and back then, you know, our neighborhood wasn't very diverse. Like I remember moving um, into our neighborhood and we were like one of two Latinx families in our neighborhood. And so then eventually like Latinx folks just filled up the east side of town here. But I think about um, not only, as you mentioned, the impact that she has on like second graders, right, where people are talking about this in class. But even for us, before she passed, um, performing, you know, a Spanish song or dancing to a Spanish song in front of a predominantly like white elementary school, right? And so that's just the level of impact. And I know that when I found out about Selena's death, like I cried, you know, like I, I just remember being so hurt and so devastated. And then again, when they remade, when they made the movie, you know, about her life and death, oh, that was even more devastating. And I, I can cry about anything. So, I mean, if I start crying now, don't judge me because I'm just <laughs> emotional as hell all the time. No. But yeah, she definitely had an impact. And I think for me, it was like, I remember being this little kid and 
I was in sixth grade when she died. And I just remember like hearing her English songs on the radio, like on 98.5 out here, right? Which is a radio station that has been around for a really long time. And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, like she's on 98.5. Like it was such a big deal um, seeing this Chicana because growing up biculturally, we grew up with, you know, uh, for me, Mexican music, Latinx music, reggaeton, and, and that was very much part of my identity. But then so was like Tupac and, <laughs> and like, you know, hip hop and, and things like that. And so knowing that there was someone out there that I could relate to and made it, you know, she was our Beyonce. And I say that all because we often think like, what could have been right like what what would she have done with her music career and so it was very impactful um for me personally but i know just like for you many many latinx folks right whether first gen um second gen because based on the series right we see that she's more like second gen third gen um and so but even then seeing seeing someone that we can relate to that we are represented by was a really big deal so let's talk about um, the series, right? We the the show opens up and there um, it, it's like 1971 in Lake Jackson, Texas, where she was born, and the it shows uh, her parents. Her mom is in the bed and dad is, you know, I think holding Selena. And um, I watched an interview with Suzette Quintanilla, who is her sister and also the producer of of the show, and she talked about how it was a really a true story that that's how she got her name. And we see that her name means goddess of the moon. And um, and so it goes from there. So we get to learn a little bit more of Selena. And I think just watching the series in general, because I totally binge watched it. Right. Um, but watching the series really made me reprocess her death and look at how much of an impact she really had and why. Right. I think at the time we were all just really sad that she had passed away and she was like this we see how celebrities have an influence on us. Like earlier this year, Kobe, right? Um, how sad that made so many people and you can just feel energy. Um, so as a little kid, really knowing that we were sad, but not knowing why. Um, and so reprocessing her death really gave me some insight about like, this is someone that I saw that I connected with in some way. And that way was not only the music, but it was the culture as well. So um, that scene is, is followed by another one where her father is teaching A.B., you know, the, the brother, um, how to play guitar. And then dad catches a, a whiff of, of Selena singing and she's about eight years old. And he's like, dude, my, my daughter's talented. Right. Um, so as we're watching the episode, we see a lot of um, different themes come up. And so one of the themes that came up for me was, you know, um, which we'll talk about in a second, but also, you know, things like living the American dream. And um, we see that the family owns a uh, Papagayo's restaurant, right? And mm -hmm. so the family, they're playing up on the front. And then as soon as they're done playing, dad's like, okay, go bust those tables, right? And so let's dive into that a little bit because how many first gen, second gen, you know, Latinx families have family businesses that we start but we're really, you know, invested in sacrificing for the family, right? Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes sacrificing school, sacrificing, you know, other things so that we can make it happen for the family when we're struggling. You see that there's a recession. Um, there's some talk about them worrying about, you know, the restaurant closing. And I think in this time that we're in right now, we see a lot of that, right? Where we're kind of going into this recession, it's affecting small businesses. But as Latinx families, we have like some unique issues that influence that, right? We're expected to um, sacrifice and, and at times, you know, put our own needs aside for the needs of the whole. And that's what we call familismo, right? So let's, what did you, um, what did you take from that? And um, I don't know, let me know what you thought about, about that whole situation with the restaurant and family businesses. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was very real, the emphasis on work, right? And what and work in a very specific like definition. So we and and you can share your experience, but I know I know for my family, like that life was about like you work, you work hard, and that's usually in a like labor sense, right? Whatever you're doing, you're out there, you're grinding, you're you're pushing forward to 
earn money for the family and to keep working, right? And so I, I think we definitely saw that in the first episode with um, Abraham being like, hey, AB, no, you, now you're, you're done with this part. Now you got to go bust those tables, right? And it just took me as you were talking about that scene back to lots of times when we've had family gatherings, even I had a very, very small quinceanera, like a backyard kind of thing. And I remember there and I was still like expected to like, okay, now like go clean up, go do all those things that you need to do. Like this isn't a, a big moment to like, yes, celebrate, but then also work, right? Yeah. So it was always interwoven into everything you do, even now in the conversations, right? It's like, no, you, you need to work. That That's what you can fall back on is, how much you put into it. Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of that too, there's pressure from, for us first gen, second gen folks, right? With like putting our dreams aside sometimes to help the family as a whole. We see that with like small businesses. I remember my mom having like a, starting up a little shop at like the swap meet and, you know, mm -hmm. having to go like watch the store, uh, you know, sometimes and not wanting to be there, but like helping out as much as you could, right? Um, and we see that with other family businesses like restaurants where, you know, you have a family who has a startup and they're trying to make it. But at the same time, everyone has to contribute. Um, one of the episodes shows, you know, and this is more related to like the financial stress. Um, but Selena says like, man, we were supposed to go on a field trip next week. Right. Because they're moving um, or missing out on certain things that we really want to engage in because at the same time, we, we understand the concept of familismo. We understand the concept of loyalty to the family, right? And that's really what familismo is. It's this loyalty to the family, knowing that extended family is going to support you, that you can go to family for support, that they're going to be there to help you. And we saw this even when they're moving to Uncle Hector's house, right? Like, this is what family does. And I appreciate it. And dad's giving a speech about like, this is what we do for each other. This is how we function. And so we do have times where we had to, you know, make up a bed on the floor and, and all sleep in, in, a, in a room, right? Like I remember doing that when I was younger, going to my tia's house and we all made like pallets on the floor and we're all sleeping in different places, kind of stepping over each other, how we saw, you know, Abraham mm -hmm. doing. And so it's tough. And I think one of the other things that, you know, came up for me is, how they struggled financially, right? Like they're they're trying to make it, they have this like family business and there's a recession that's impacting your business and now you're struggling, right? You're struggling to get mm -hmm. by. And all along you have um, this family intact. And so for me, I know that I didn't know we were low income. Like I didn't know we were poor growing up, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so just seeing some of those same um, struggles, right? That were, were happening is even makes me relate even more. Um, understanding that, oh yeah, we had to make some sacrifices for the family too. We had to, you know, kind of contribute to the family business. But at the same time, we didn't really know that we were low income, right? Um, eventually we see that they have to close down the, the restaurant and we see the chairs and it's, they show a for, a for lease sign, right? Um, and so I think in, in those situations, financial stress is such, is such a big stressor for families. And I think we see that now um, currently, right? But understanding that how, how it impacts Latinx families is kind of unique. I don't know what your experience was growing up, but I just, I remember, you know, knowing that I had an intact family and not really thinking that I, I, I was missing out on anything until later on. So like AB makes a comment like, oh, I want a Mercedes. And he's like, oh, maybe one mm -hmm. day, right? Um, mm -hmm. But for me, it was like nice shoes, right? Mm -hmm. And growing up as a first gen meant that my parents came from a little pueblito in Mexico right, where there was very um, few resources in talking with like my my grandparents or my parents even, you know, they, they didn't even have streetlights until like the 1970s, which is like, what, right? Yeah. And we don't really understand um, how much their culture is influencing our upbringing, but at the same time, um, how, how we're also growing up simultaneously in this new culture. 
And so I go back to like, for me, it was like shoes and clothes and not being able to like get the shoes that I want because it, in my parents' mind, I imagine like we're doing way better than we were doing in our pueblito, but still like 40, 50, $60 shoes back then was like outrageous. Right. So I don't know what, what did you, um, how did you interpret that? How did that resonate with you? Yeah. I, I think I had a, a, a similar experience growing up with not knowing, you know, what our economic status was. Um, and I, I think it was an interesting, like looking back now, it, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition of seeing, sh being shielded from some of that through my mom is amazing at sales and finding us something that looked good for the least amount of money. So we were able to, I think, get what we wanted in, in a different sense, right? But then pairing that with, we were on food stamps growing up, right? And I know in the first episode, there's a lot of shame around that in his family. And, and you see all of the other families like in line. And I remember, I, I kind of pictured myself in a different way it, as Selena, the little girl, because I remember going with my mom to the different offices and interpreting for her and kind of playing that role of it. So there was never the shame piece of it because it was so normalized, but also somewhat balanced with, we had what we needed. We never asked for anything extravagant. And so again, Christmas, we had presents. We So, so there was that kind of dual experience, which was, I think, interesting. And we saw some of that in, in that episode and just the role that shame plays when someone, usually the male feels like they're not being the provider, right? And, and what that means for that family. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a really good point, right? And especially because the shame was coming from Abraham, right? So looking at, I didn't even think about it from that perspective, but absolutely, like as in our culture, especially like that machismo piece, right? Shows up in a lot of different ways and it thought it's not always negative, but it absolutely has an impact on like, uh, there's some shame associated with not being able to provide, like you said. Mm -hmm. I know that in my household, I think part of part of what really helped is my parents knew how to live below their means. And I think growing up in Mexico really helped them do that because living below their means here was living way above their means there, right? Mm -hmm. And so the little bit that they had here, they made it happen. You know, we we never missed out on food or clothing or, or shelter, you know, because they knew how to live uh, below the means. But I can say I remember, you know, growing up and thinking like there's shame associated with like seeking help or being on food stamps mm -hmm. or seeking welfare. Right. There's it's almost like a, you came here to live this American dream and now you're collecting food stamps. And I just, I, you know, watching that episode, I thought, man, thank God they like changed it into a debit card because showing food coupons was even more like adding to the shame, right? Like, here, let me pay you with my food coupons. Um, but mm -hmm. you do see Marcela, her mom, budgeting them, right? And I mm -hmm. think that reminded me of like, yes, we need, we learn how to live within our means and we learn how to make it happen, you know? Um, yep. And that that reminds me of like the the DIY um, lamps that they made, mm -hmm. right? So like you you said your mom like was really good at like sales and just making things happen. And I think I I picked up a lot of that myself too growing up, just like making things look nice. Like I remember <laughs> I remember my homecoming dress was like like fifteen bucks, and I just made it work. Like if you make it look good, then nobody will know. You know, you spent yeah. fifteen dollars on your dress at like Fashion Q. Um, yes. But we made it happen. And so just thinking about uh, it was kind of there was some comedy added to that where he's like the, the lady recognizes Selena at the welfare office. And she's like, here's a little things that Papagayos is like, oh, wrong room. Right. Like mm -hmm. he just kind of dips out of there. But obviously there's a bunch of factors contributing to that. Right. Um, I'm a male. I'm supposed to provide. Um, I'm supposed to make this happen. We had a restaurant. We're supposed to be doing well, but we're struggling. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. he gives a speech to Marcela gives him a speech and then he gives a speech to the kids and he's like, here, go check out with these with these food coupons. Mm -hmm. um, but going back to the DIY lamps, right? Like they get they get this gig um, and they they go and they dumpster dive for these duraznos, these peach cans that 
either have already been used or some that they threw out because they've been expired. And mm -hmm. you see them making the lambs, but then they're eating the peaches too. And so that really, you know, you, you think like, oh my God, they're eating expired peaches, but we did that. Like, I remember <laughs> my mom, um, I'm like, the, the, the milk is expired, mom. And she's like, huelalo. Like smell it, see if it's still good, right? Yep. And if it didn't stink, you were you're eating that with your cereal, you know, along with other expired foods. And what was your experience with that? Yeah, no, that saying no se gasta nada. You you don't waste anything, right? You use every part of everything. You reuse, right? There's, I think I saw a meme not too long ago of how Latinos were the first like green people who who are like trying to like reuse and you think about just all the plastic containers and how you use those things three, four, yeah. five times until you no longer can, yeah. right? And you think about just all of the times, even now, like my mom is very into home decor and, but she will like buy something and then whenever it needs changing, she will get spray paint, she will get the craft, she will make it something different. But again, you're you're not wasting, right? It's not spending money for just the sake of spending it, right? So, yeah, I think that has played such a a big role, and I think many people relate to that of not trying to live in in kind of that wasteful state, which I think a lot of people it, it's easy to do that, right? But yeah. growing up, it's like no, you you don't do that. You reuse all the bags from the grocery stores. You reuse those plastic containers so you can never find what actually is in the actual container right yeah. so Butter there's all those sauce. moments yep you don't know right yeah so yeah, I, I really appreciated that that moment with them re reusing right and not going anything going to waste yeah i mean my mom still does that right like she mm -hmm. saves everything and i think for <laughs> it was kind of extreme right but to some extent it was like damn mom like you don't have to throw that away anymore we can buy new uh reusable cups <laughs> like, yeah you know <laughs> but but absolutely i i think that even that stuck with me because even now i find myself like not wanting to be wasteful um mm -hmm. and you know not only in the, for the purpose of being more green but Absolutely, because that's something that's part of the cultura that just sticks with you, right? Like you grew up where we weren't really, you know, getting rid of much. Uh, we were reusing as we could. Bang Tupperware sets, we're using the butter, we're using, you know, the tin can of the cookies, we're using it mm -hmm. all. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I definitely think that was they dropped because it it is the struggle for a lot of Latinx families, right? Um, and even now, like, I'm like, if the bun's not molded, like, it's still good, you know, <laughs> I'm still eating it. And I'm like, I could totally buy another loaf of bread, but this has just been ingrained, um, as part of our culture, as part of growing up Latinx and, and probably as part of growing up low income really, and not knowing it, you know, mm -hmm. um, one of the other things that came up, uh, in the series was, you know, Abraham, the dad decides to make this sacrifice right like everything the music comes in front of everyone so we see him move to uncle hector's house and they're all in the same room and there's an episode there's a scene where he's making a trailer so they can carry their equipment and the the brother uncle hector's like those are some really good skills that you got to put to use right um and he's like oh yeah i'm putting them to use i'm making stuff for my for the band and he says, well, then you can drive a car, you can drive a truck. And he's like, well, if I drive a truck, I'm gonna be driving the same truck for 10 years, driving another truck in 10 years and just keep driving the same truck or in 10 years, she could, she could be a star. And Uncle Hector's response is like, dude, you, you're never gonna change, you and your music, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the piece where we see this biculturalism kind of really play a role because we have the the valores, we have the value of work and on one side, but then we're also looking at like chasing that American dream, chasing that success or that dream in general, right? And it and it could be mm -hmm. anything, not just music um, or acting. It can be you know being doctors, right? But going to mm -hmm. school, going to college, and being the first to do all these other things, and so. Um, his response is like, well, I could drive a truck, but as long as it doesn't interfere, right? As long as it mm -hmm. doesn't interfere. And so we get that initial response from Uncle Hector, like, well, what are you talking about, dude? Like, you should be providing for the family. 
And so we see that value of work come up again. Um, but mm -hmm. then he switches it up and says, well, you know, so-and-so is having a wedding and, you know, he gives them a gig. He goes and finds like their first gig yeah. before they make the, the peach can lamparas. And um, so I, I just thought that was really interesting because I think as first-gen folks, we're like the first to become professionals, first college, first to graduate high school, right? And a lot of the times, at least for, for folks who go to college, um, it can be the family can see it as like, well, why, why aren't you just working? Why is this taking so long, right? Like how long have you been in school already and you're not making any money? And I know that I heard that at least from my family, right? Um, where we had a converse, there was a conversation and the conversation was like, damn, well, you've been in school for how long? You could have saved so much money now had you been working all this time. And it just seems like a lot. And so there's so much sacrifice that we have to do while also trying to juggle these like um, cultural expectations that mm -hmm. we have, you know, working and, and chasing the American dream, but doing it, like, as you mentioned earlier, through labor, through physical labor. Um, mm -hmm. How did that resonate with you? Yeah, no, yes to everything you just said. I, I think in, in that scene, being honest, I think I had a moment of being with Uncle Hector of like, yeah, why, why aren't you working? Like, why aren't you putting this into this other? But again, it's from that just narrative I grew up with, right? And I think my family resembled a little bit more maybe of the, the message that Uncle Hector was sharing, right? Of you put in that work, right? And, and it, yes, there's these dreams, but if they're not yielding you in the moment what you're wanting then set those aside and you keep working so i know for me it was it was hard like it, it was hard to to stick with my education and knowing know that family was not 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 supportive but not understanding maybe of where i wanted to go and so their question was always like you're still in school are you still in school like are you done yet Right. And it, it takes a while, but I, I think, and I still don't think they understand completely. And, and I'm at a point where I understand why and I respect why, because it's, it's a very different experience. Right. So it, it was nice to see, I think, both of those conversations happening and within the same family. I think that was what was refreshing of having one person kind of chasing their dream, right? And then having another person having a little bit more of a traditional idea of what that that meant, right? But then them coming together at the end and kind of supporting each other because it's family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I had that same initial reaction, like, dude, your family's homeless right now. Like you need to be like getting a job. You need to be doing what you can to pay these bills, right? And I think initially there's that reaction, but this is why we're dissecting you know, the, the episode, because really when you think about it, it's like, oh man, like I experienced that too, um, being in school and having the struggle. And I think many first gen, second gen, you know, Latinx folks do that as well. And I think that's something that we see in like therapy all the time, trying to juggle like these different values that we have, right? While at the same time, mm -hmm. setting boundaries, but also, you know, just making sacrifices to get to where we want to end up. And so, yeah, initially I found myself um, siding with them, but I think that there's, we, we can also see all the other factors, um, you know, influencing that conversation or even influencing Abraham, right? Because from a provider perspective, a male perspective, uh, I think we're, we're also, you know, this is how much we're influenced by our own culture. We're also thinking like, dude, like you're supposed to provide while at the mm -hmm. same time, you know, saying, okay, well, this is where familismo comes in, right? Not only is Uncle Hector helping you out, but now he's plugging you with a gig that, you know, you're gonna, it's gonna get, essentially get you started. And mm -hmm. so I was also glad to see that, that they were able to kind of come to a resolution, like, dude, you don't change, but I'm gonna support you. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I thought that that was a really um, awesome uh, thing to kind of have those two perspectives in the same, in the same scene. I think that was really awesome. So we'll talk about um, trust. Trust came up a couple of times in, in the series, right? Where like Abraham asked his family, do you trust your father? 
Do you trust your father? Mm -hmm. And I think part of that, you know, um, had to do with that masculine perspective or like, I got to make this happen, but I also need my family on board, right? I also need them mm -hmm. to trust me. Like, I know we're struggling right now, but I'm doing this for a reason. What did you make out of um, him repeatedly asking, do you trust father? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think I read it as the, I have to be the provider sense. And part of it to me too, kind of looking back on it is reassuring himself of like, okay, no, like I, I got this, I got this, right? Yeah. But like you said, knowing that you need the, the family support if it's gonna work, right? And I, I think there was a lot of um, like blind faithfulness that needed to happen. And that thinking back, and this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but I, I think it starts in this episode, we see it throughout how there's not a ton of transparency between the adults and the children, right? And just thinking about, at least in my personal experience, and um, I know a lot of like my extended family, there's there's a clear division of adults and children and what gets said, what doesn't get said and the communication part of that, right? And so I think it showed him, like you were saying earlier, a, a good depiction of what a like second gen family might experience of someone trying to open it up a little bit, but still keeping that distance, right? And keeping it very much separate of like, this is my responsibility. The whole family is my responsibility. So there's a lot of pressure in that, right? And I think it made me a little sympathize a little bit more with with Abraham versus seeing him as maybe a little bit more like strict or controlling. It, it made me feel like the, the pressure he feels. Yeah. It, what do you think about, I mean, you, br you bring up a really good point about how like there was, like, I know what my dad is doing, but I really don't know what he's doing because there's an episode where, I mean, a scene where they're playing at this like fair, right? And then the guy's like, oh, thanks so much. And he pays them and he gives them like a stack of fives, mm -hmm. right? And then all of a sudden, AB a Jr. comes up and he's like, um, can we get something to eat now? And he basically hands them over like the almost the entire chunk of, that, of cash that he got. And so mm -hmm. we see that struggle of like trying to make ends meet, trying to stay afloat, right? Trying to make things happen. Um, but at the same time, a lot of sacrificing. And I know that that was something, I think it's something common in a lot of Latinx households where we don't really include our kids in what's going on. Um, but I also think that that has a negative impact on kids, right? We don't see a lot of that on the show, but I think for us growing up, at least for me, you know, I, and, and now having my own kids, like I, I think about now how I'm more trans with my kids. I, I choose to be more open and talk to them about certain things, right? And and it extends beyond like the financial status of the family, but just things in general. There's so many things that, calladitos se ven más bonitos, right? Like you just sit in the corner, be quiet and mind your own business or stay in your child's place. And I hate that because it really minimizes um, our kids, right? It, it almost sends a message that you're not on the same level as me and you're not you know, you don't, you're on a need to know basis and you don't need to know, right? And obviously mm -hmm. some things we want to, you know, be mindful about what we talk about in front of our kids. But at the same time, like knowing that there are things that are very anxiety provoking to kids, right? Like um, relocating schools. Uh, mm -hmm. We see Suzette talking about, you know, what about me? Like I have all my friends here and she's a teenager. So knowing that, you know, as a clinician, knowing that relocations whether it's school and a home relocation can cause a lot of distress. It can impact, you know, academic functioning and things like that. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, we do see this lack of communication, which I think is very common among um, Latinx folks and, and Latinx families. Um, but how do you see that, you know, coming into, I see that in, in the therapy room um, quite often, right? Like trying to navigate that and trying to figure out what, what is it, even in my own therapy, like when is it okay to talk to my kid about this, right? Um, what, what do you think about that? 
In so I work at a non-profit medical clinic, um, integrated care, and so we do therapy for whoever our patients are. And most of the patients I see are recent immigrants from Mexico, anywhere from like a year they've only been in the U.S. a year to 20, 30 years, right? So it's a big range. But what I see often though is that parent-child struggle, right? Dealing with like acculturation, um, dealing with not understanding some of the maybe American values that the kids are, are wanting to adopt or are like drawn to for various reasons. And so I, I see that struggle often of parents not understanding the children and not understanding where to go with it, right? Not understanding how how to talk to them. Is it, can they talk to them, right? So a lot of the work I feel like that I have done is in trying to open those spaces to offer conversation, right? It's like, j- just start with attempting a conversation. And even that can create such a space for healing and for understanding and to go around all the behavioral issues that, that come from this in-betweenness that a lot of us first gen, second gen folks feel, right? Because you're, you're, you're not rooted in either space entirely. And it, it feels like you're not I'll speak for myself. Feels like it, growing up, it felt like I wasn't like neither here neither yeah, right? That common saying of neither from here or from there. And so, getting I think the the parents to just have a little bit of that insight into that experience, I think, can be extremely helpful. Yeah, because it causes conflict, right? Like I think um, growing up biculturally can cause a lot of conflict in the home because there is that lack of understanding. There's like that that missing piece that parents aren't necessarily grasping because this isn't how they grew up right like they grew up for at least for my parents right they grew up in a little town in in durango mexico and you know where everyone knew everybody right like i remember being a little girl and going to like visit my grandparents in mexico and i would go to like the little corner store and they'd be like oh you're so-and-so's daughter just mm-hmm. off of looks, right? Like that's how much people knew each other. And then we come here and there's a total shift, right? Uh, you go from, you have this extended family and this interconnectedness, this familismo. Um, and then here you come to a country where you're supposed to be independent. You're supposed to, you know, find your dreams and, you know, chase them and reach your goals and do all these other things. Um, but there's also different cultural factors that come into play that I think cause a lot of conflict. So I think for me, that was not only my parents not understanding why I wanted to go hang out with my friends or why my friendships were important, um, but really getting them to understand like this is normal behavior here. This isn't mm-hmm. like out of the norm. And so I think that was difficult. And I I know that I've been on this journey, right? Like it takes a really long time to realize who you are. And I, I'm, as you mentioned, you know, I'm still on my decolonization journey. Uh, and I think we're all in like different places with our identity, but I'm not really sure that I can say I was comfortable being my authentic self until like a few years ago, right? Where mm-hmm. we're constantly developing this identity and, and even growing up here has a, a negative, some negative aspects to it, right? In terms of like what we grow up thinking um, professional looks like, what a psychologist looks like, what a business owner looks like, how how a business owner talks, what kind of music they listen to, right? And really dimming our own light um, because of these ideas and ideals that we've come up with. And so growing up bicultural was, was really difficult looking, you know, in retrospect. So mm-hmm. um, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I think you had mentioned earlier too, like, with Suzette and, and the changing schools, right? So moving from Chicago to Texas or San Antonio down south, it I was in that like seven, eight years old, third grade. And that was honestly, just speaking to the difference in culture in Chicago, it was, it's very, the neighborhoods there are very segregated. And so where I live was pr- primarily Mexican, Mexican American. And so that was, that was my world. That's what I knew. I didn't know other people existed really 
was like, that's all I saw. Corner stores, people speaking Spanish, like that was just common. And then in Texas, there's the Texas culture, I think is unique. I've grown to love it. Um, I say y'all now, and it's a very much a part of my identity. But there is, I think, an unspoken hierarchy among the minority populations there, right? And so a lot of times there's this, and again, this is generalizing, um, but that was the first time where I experienced racism from someone who looked like me, right? Because I was a kid speaking Spanish and someone called me a slur and I looked at her and I was like, you're like, you're brown like me, What what's happening here, right? And not really understanding it. And so that I think further complicated it with not being, not feeling American, not feeling Mexican. And now I'm in this place where there's this kind of third culture where I'm like, oh, maybe I fit here and you don't, right? Or, or I, I didn't feel like I did at that time. And so I, I think a lot of kids who, end up relocating for various reasons and thinking about just the families that I've worked with here in Las Vegas, there are a lot of families who have had to move for financial reasons. And even if you're just moving neighborhoods in Las Vegas, that can create a big identity shift depending what what school you go to, right? So being aware, I think, of that is super important, something that I think needs further conversation. So growing up biculturally, I think that music is a big influence on us. Like I can have days where I go from like Jenny Rivera and Selena and Banda to other days where I'm like Beyonce, Tupac, Jay-Z, Nipsey Hussle, right? <laughs> and growing up, um, I think that having this strong Mexican identity was hard because, you know, acculturation is so important to Latinx mental health. And I know there's like research on, you know, the more you, you acculturate, the the more the less likely you are to experience depression and anxiety and things like that and so it's a very difficult um i guess journey because for me it was like mexican music sounds funky to my friends like it sounds weird right like mm -hmm. and at the same time i have this like really like strong identity and and people are looking at you like y'all dance funny like your music is funny like Right. And but at the same time, me loving that aspect of my culture um, while simultaneously also loving American culture. And so I think that that's why I think it takes us so long to to reach this like this point in our lives where we're like, OK, this is my identity. This is who I am and I can be my authentic self uh, in talking about culturalism, going back to like Selena and like Suzette, we see, you know, how, how important friendships are. And I just don't think that my parents really understood that, right? So again, leaving us in kind of in wondering like what's going on, uh, but at the same time, like there's things that I think come working with Latinx families where there's so many things that are still taboo, right? Like we don't talk to our kids about um, from things you know, from sex to your menstrual period to whatever the case is, mm -hmm. if your parents didn't grow, grow up and their parents were talking about this, chances are that they weren't talking to you about it. And mm -hmm. so while I definitely think that there are certain things like financial, you know, economic status and all these things that you probably don't need to stress your children about are things that come up like biculturalism and other things that I think are important to talk to, to kiddos about. Mm hmm mental health right like that's i think i i remember having a moment with my mom as an adult um of wanting to again erase the stigma with mental health and let next folks and i had gone through a pretty bad period of depression and anxiety and was finally able to kind of use tools seek help and do all that and I had a moment with my mom of like, oh, this is a perfect time for me to tell her. Like, I, there was an incident. I was feeling anxious. It's like, let me tell her about that. And I mentioned it. And again, it was very like soft and sort of like, oh, I was anxious, right? Yeah. And then she had this like small deer in the headlights moment, and was like, okay. And conversation went a different way. It's like, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave it because it, it's not ready, but there's a little seed planted, right? So with, with all of the things you mentioned and mental health and emotions, like being able to plant these seeds for 
folks who who are seeking space to talk about it and and it's all okay it's all normal we just need to create that space right yeah and i think this will definitely come up um later on in the series when we're discussing other episodes right like how how stress impacts you know the family and how it starts to trickle down and how we're really not talking we're not having these open conversations about mental health and we know how much um stress is uh, a contributing factor in anxiety and in depression but nonetheless it's not talked about and so i'm excited to dissect the other episodes with you as well um so towards the end of the the first episode we see that you know abraham realizes after doing a gig at the fair and he's like talking with Marcela and she's like, you know, music in Espanol is just so much more romantic. And they decide he's like, light bulb goes off and they to sing Tejano music in Spanish. And so mm -hmm. he's in the car with Selena and Suzette and they're listening to the radio station and there's like English music playing and he changes it. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? And so he starts having this conversation with her about, you know, her having the, both identities. Cause she's like, I'm American. And he's like, but you're also Mexican. You have the two uh, cultures inside of you. Mm -hmm. And he's asking her to basically sing in Spanish even though she doesn't know how to speak Spanish. And so even though I think that Selena is not first gen, right? Well, we know she's not first gen. We don't know if she's second or third gen language and bilingualism is another issue, right? That that comes up. And for me, you know, Spanish was my first language. I I was in ESL classes when I lived in LA, and um, I didn't get exposed to English until you know I went to school. Mm -hmm. And so we know, you know, based on research, that it takes like five years for someone to fully develop the language, right? She learned it through music, but I also think like, even though there's so many different levels um, of in within the umbrella of bilingualism, because for me, you know, I have parents who don't have a high level of education, who, you know, taught me the Spanish that they knew, right? This is the mm -hmm. slang Spanish or the Espanol that you talk about in, in your household, right? It's some, some of the words aren't even real. Like when you, when you start to realize what, you know, proper professional Spanish is. And so for me, you know, having this identity of Spanish is my first language. And, and, you know, I have patients all the time who are like, how did, how do you know Spanish so good? Right? Like, because I, I speak it like my mom speaks it, mm -hmm. but being in this field has also taught me that I really don't know about Spanish. I don't know it. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't know the professional Spanish. And I've been asked to like, you know, speak, whether it's on a podcast or like a do a news segment. And I find myself having to like Google things or having to like teach, reteach myself, you know, the proper way of saying something like there's no such thing as a parqueadero, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> es un estacionamiento, like estacionamiento, like it's not, yeah. it's not necessarily like these are words that we got from parking and, and made it yeah. parqueadero, right? Like yeah. that's not how you speak, you know, in a professional manner. And so we see her like taking on this language and, you know, starting to sing the music in, in, in Spanish and even learns it because she sounds awesome. Her accent is like on point. Um, <laughs> but what was that like you, you know? Uh, I know, I know on the flip side, we have other Latinx folks who identify as Mexican and aren't necessarily Spanish speaking. And I think we have, we get that pushback too from the, from the culture, right? Where it's like, well, you're not, you're not really Mexican if you don't speak Spanish, mm -hmm. but that that's not true, right? Because there's so many mm -hmm. levels within the spectrum of bilingualism. So yeah. what, what was your take on that? Yeah, I, I love what you ended with there because I, I think that's where I finally, I finally reached that point of not being ashamed of whatever Spanish I speak, right? I, I think yeah. me and language have had a journey, honestly. And I used to be, I think really, one, as a kid, same first language growing up, my mom only spoke Spanish. So in the home, that's what we spoke. School, that's where I learned English. I have an older brother. So, you know, language, I think, developed a little more quickly there. But it wasn't until, again, somebody pointed out, like, why are you speaking Spanish? That I was like, oh, I didn't know this was not a thing that everybody did. And I kind of reverted the complete opposite way. And there was a lot of shame in using Spanish outside of the home, right? And same, there, there's kind of the 
Spanish the rancho that we kind of spoke. And so when I was in grad school, yep, when when I was in grad school, that's when I was really interested in providing therapy for Spanish speaking folks. And that's also when I was like, oh, I don't know if I know Spanish anymore. And that journey, I think, was again, just that inner conflict, that inner uncertainty of who am I? Like, am I enough for this language, for that language? And through, I think, working with folks and seeing the appreciation that people have for one, just attempting, right? Like you're trying to connect with me in a way that others haven't. Finding so much value in that and finding, I think, my own kind of voice and confidence through that to where I I don't have an accent when I speak again because I grew up speaking it. Um, But there there are words that I'm like, "Mm, I don't don't know what that is, right? So Google is is a friend. Uh, But I think reaching that point of, yeah, there's there's no right or wrong way to be in whatever identity you identify, right? So as Mexican American, there's there's not a certain level you need to be at, or that's correct, right? And, and there's so much freedom when you when you reach that point. But I, I don't think those conversations again happen enough to where people still don't feel shame around it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's a lot of historical context that you know, can help explain some of that pushback that, you know, in some parts of the country where it's like, really, you should be ashamed of speaking Spanish, we're in America, you know, whatever the case is. Um, But I also think that that comes from a historical place where before we were literally like punished for speaking Spanish, right? Like, um, people were really fearful of being heard speaking Spanish. And so um, that was almost a survival mechanism. And that goes back to like the third, fourth, fifth generation, you know, Latinx folks. And then you have like the first gen, second gen folks who are like, oh, you don't speak Spanish, then you're not that Mexican or you're not really Mexican. And so going back and forth and then finding out that, damn, Spanish is my first language, but I don't know real professional Spanish, right? I I know uh, Espanol de Rancho, like you said, right? And, And that's my thing. And I can totally get down on that. So whenever we do these Spanglish episodes or these Spanish episodes, um, please forgive me in advance because I'm going to royally mess some things up, right? Like, and as long, and I think that there is that appreciation though of you're trying, right? You're still trying to communicate. You're still trying to convey the message and trying to erase the stigma. So Dr. Mejia, thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to dissecting the other episodes with you and really diving into some of the mental health implications that come along or come up in some of those episodes. And then in the future, you know, looking at other series like Gentified or Gentified, uh, which is an awesome series if you haven't watched it. I don't think that the new uh, season's coming out until like uh, sometime late next year or 2022 even because of uh, the pandemic. But I am absolutely looking forward to not only this episode, but all the future episodes. So Tell us where um, folks can find you. I know we put it on the the little ticker there, but where can we find you? Where can folks follow you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, This awesome conversation that I think will dive more deep into some of those very specific things that influence all of us, right? So um, I have, you can follow me on Instagram at Salud Psychology. Um, So it's Salud, S-A-L-U-D, Psychology. And um, again, you can reach out through there, um, trying to build more content for, and it's all like you're saying, Spanish, Spanglish, English, just to, to reach as many people and to continue to sp- spread that acceptance of mental health, of feelings, emotions, like it, it's all valid. So thank you for the work you do and for starting this this conversation. Thank you. We're all, you know, erasing the the stigma in our own way. So trying to not only spread the word, but educate folks and, you know, try talking folks into being more open to mental health services and and having these conversations at home. So thank you. You can find me at, uh, you can find us at at Borrando el Estigma on um, Instagram as well. It's Borrando underscore el underscore estigma. Um, you can also hit me up at Dr. Dr. Sandra Gray on Instagram. 
And if you like this episode, follow us. Um, you can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms that you can listen to, uh, listen podcasts to. So thank you so much again, and I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and that some of the things Dr. Mejia and I discussed resonated with your spirit. When things hit different, I say deep sigh on that, reminding myself to connect with the breath and that it's safe to feel my feelings, whatever they are, good or bad, and to stay present with them. So if anything resonated with you or if you had any takeaways or insights, please let us know by using the hashtag deep sigh on that. Be sure to go to the show notes for links to our website and check out the Erase the Stigma merch. We donate 25% of profits to fund mental health services for BIPOC. In the notes, you'll also find information about our guests and yours truly, Dr. Sandra Gray. Don't forget to share this episode with all the Selena fans in your life and join us for episode two. If you haven't already, subscribe, give us a rating, and your reviews are much appreciated. Gracias.